Welcome to the Hope on the Way podcast with Father John Ahmet. John is the coordinator for the Christian Ecumenical and Missional Society of St. Patrick and St. Aidan, and he's the founder of Hope on the Way Ministries. Now, join Father John and discover hope and relevant answers in following Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. May the Lord be with you. This is an important passage of Scripture we're looking at today. It's John 17, 20 through 26. And the title of this message is Igniting Generational Revival Through Visible Christian Unity. I think a lot of people are getting the idea today that we have to have a generational revival or we're going to lose this generation of young people. And that's not overstatement. Every demographic study tells us that these generation of young people, high school age through, through young adult, are the most faithless generation that the United States has ever seen. And they also the same thing is going on in Europe and Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Many are waking up to the fact that we're about ready to lose the last generation. And many are trying, trying to fight the good fight. Many are trying to make good faith efforts to reach the lost, to promote generational revival. But in spite of the best intentions, things don't seem to be working. We keep waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and no revival and no revival and no revival. And in the meantime, it seems like many in the church are beginning to go into their hive even deeper, like bees in winter. Well, we have our own church and we're surrounded by darkness and so we're just going to hive even tighter and stay in our hive till hopefully revival breaks out. We have good news today for those of you who are hoping for generational revival, those of you who are hoping for God to move, and that is in John 17, Jesus prayed directly for us. He prayed directly for us who would believe through the message of the apostles. And I can't think of any one who could pray a more powerful prayer than Jesus. Can you? Who could possibly pray a more powerful prayer? And his prayer, his prayer, reveals the way forward for us to re-evangelize our nations and to experience, once again, the generational revival we desperately need. In verse 21, Jesus prayed... He prayed that when the world would see his church united as one, they would know that God the Father sent him. 
That was his prayer, that we would be one so that the world would know that God the Father sent him. And Jesus prayed that prayer because he wants to ignite generational revival through visible Christian unity. Now, I grew up in a tradition that made a big deal out of spiritual unity, spiritual unity. They said John 17 was all about spiritual unity. When I first read it and when I first heard him say that to me, I, I parroted it. I said, yes, spiritual unity. But I knew deep down inside that wasn't true. Jesus defines the unity, the oneness of the church is visible. In verse 23, look there. Jesus said he wanted the church to be in complete unity. Can you, can you have complete unity if that unity is not visible? You can't have a complete unity. You can't have that perfect unity. It's like a married couple saying, we are in complete unity and we have perfect unity, but we live in separate houses and we, we go about separate lives. The unity that Jesus wants is spiritual, but it is also visible. It's perfect unity. Let's explore this idea more. In John 14, a few chapters earlier, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, how long have you known me? If you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. Because I and the Father are one. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. And in verse 21, Jesus compares the unity that he has with the Father and the Father has with him to the unity we're supposed to have. Verse 21, he says, Father, I pray, as you are in me and I in you, that they will be in us, united. Folks, that's visible unity. And when the world sees that the church is in visible unity, we will be, as Paul said to the Colossians in the first chapter, the 27th verse of his epistles, that Christ is in you all the hope of what? Glory. That when the world sees the church in unity, they see Christ. And when they see Christ, what do they know? That the Father has sent Jesus. That Jesus is true man, true God, Savior, Lord, and coming King. Now I'm going to be the first to admit that visible unity is difficult because it's not primarily about us. We're to be unified not primarily for what we get out of it. It's not about you. And if things aren't about you, are they a little harder to do? Yeah. Yeah. Let's be honest. If things don't serve your interest, are you more or less inclined to do them? Yeah, you're less inclined. In verse 20, 21 of John 17, he says, Father, I pray that they would be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's 
See, he prayed that prayer not so much for us, but for who? For them. Because he wants to save as many as he can from the darkness and the fallenness of this world. And when Jesus said, so the world may believe that you have sent me, he just doesn't mean the earth. The Greek word is cosmos. And the cosmos is is earth, but it's also all of creation. See, when the church is in visible unity, it is in the grace and power of Christ. And the lost people of this world see it, but also the heavenly beings see it, the angels and the archangels, the saints who have gone before us. And the demonic powers, the principalities and powers and thrones and rulers and the heavenlies, they see unity. And it affects them. Why do we see so little visible unity? One reason is because of spiritual warfare. Because when the church is in unity, it is in a state of grace and power that is irresistible and is a confirming sign to the authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will know that Christ was sent by God and is the Savior of the world when we are in unity. Do you like have a top two or three list of things you do and don't want to happen? Probably, maybe if you don't have them written down, you got them in your head. Satan, I think Satan has them written down. And on the top three is he doesn't want to see the church in complete unity, invisible unity, because if that would happen, if that would happen, it would affect the principalities and powers and thrones and rulers of, the, of this world and the heavenlies. It would shake the demonic foundations that are, that are ingrained in the folkways and the mores of our human lives, Satan would lose territory and influence. It's a big deal. Spiritual warfare is going on. That's why why we see so little Christian visible unity. And we see so little, as I've said before, because it's not in our self-interest. In fact, Christian unity may go against our immediate self-interest. Not our long-term self-interest, but our immediate self-interest. Why should you practice visible unity with your brothers and sisters in the extended church? Why should you do it? In the immediate, there probably isn't a lot to it for you. In the long run, there will be. But it's not about you, is it? Who is it about? Who is it about? Then, you want to see generational revival? You want to see the church come awake, the church come alive? Then we've got to, we've got to live out the reality of John 17 visible unity. And the good news is that Christ has given you, He's given us, He's given me three gifts to help express visible unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The first one's a little, a little, a little different. You wouldn't think of this offhand, but it's there in John 17. Jesus says that I want them to be one. I pray, Father, they would be one because 
I have given them glory. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one. That's verse 22. He said, I gave them, I gave the church the glory you gave me. And that, that, that's more than the Shekinah glory cloud we delight in when God shows up and manifests that way. It's more than that. He's given us His glory. Not that He showed up in His glory, but He's given it to us. And we could really spend some time examining this today, but I want to just focus on two things with glory. First of all, if God has given us His glory, then His church, we are glorious. We are glorious. The church is glorious. And one aspect of this glorious, this glory, is that the church is important. That which is glorious is important. By our behavior today, by our behavior today, does it seem on the minds of many, many people who call themselves Christians and followers of Christ that the church is important? In fact, people are leaving the church in mass numbers like never before. There is this phenomenon, the phenomenon, the out-of-church movement. It's, it's a movement. You see, the church has the glory of the Father, which Christ gave to us, and it means that the church is important. It's a big deal. It really does matter what the church says and what it does. How many times have you heard people tell you it doesn't matter if I go to church? Raise your hand if you've heard people say that. Doesn't matter if I go to church. Doesn't matter. Wow. Wow. Don't you know you have the glory here? Don't you know it matters to it matters to eternity what we the church say and do. It matters. The church is glorious and it also reflects the Splendor of God. If we have the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we have this splendor, we have this radiance, we have this beauty. And if that's true, why isn't the church drawing more people rather than repelling? There could be a lot of reasons. But one reason we're not drawing people is because we're not in visible unity. We don't think the church is important. I challenge you that there are many, many people who, who are part of local parishes and churches that really don't think it's that important. How are they to think that the universal church is important? Listen, it's got God's glory. The gift of God's glory has been given to us. The glory of God will live in us and He will live in you because Christ has given that as a gift so that we can express unity. The second gift of the three mentioned by Jesus in John 17 is the gift of knowing the Father. Verse 26, he said, I have made you known to them, Father. So he's given us this gift. He's made the Father known to us. But in verse 45, he has a special designation. He says, righteous Father, I've made you known to them. Righteous Father, I have made you known to them. He presents to his people, the church, the righteous Father. 
That's the gift he gave us. We know the Father. We know his nature, his characters, his values, his command. We call that apostolic teaching because it came from Christ and the apostles. The Bible is a collection. The New Testament is a collection of apostolic teaching. And not only that, but the church's understanding of Scripture is part of the apostolic teaching. Can anyone just interpret the Bible? The answer is no. Only those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are active in the life of the church. Because the church is glorious. It matters what the church has said in the past. The apostolic teaching contained in sacred scripture and the church's understanding of it tells us that our righteous father has right beliefs. Apostolic teaching also tells us about right living. Christ revealed the Father to us, and is the Father loving, yes or no? Is He loving? He's a loving Father. He's a loving Father. Let me ask you this. Does a loving parent have boundaries? If they don't have boundaries, they're not a loving parent, and our Father loves us, and He has boundaries for us. Boundaries are boundaries. When we cross boundaries, we are in rebellion against the Father. So we have this gift of knowing the Father. It makes, us, it makes us in unity together. Not only through the glory He's given us, but also the correct teaching of the Gospel. And the right living. The commands, the morality that God commands us to live in. We live in unity when we agree on the essentials of our faith and we agree on the boundaries that God has obviously set through apostolic teaching in sacred scripture. If you want to argue about that, if you want to argue about that, no, not only are you not living, are you not living out visible unity, you are in rebellion against the righteous Father. He's given us his glory, he's given us the gift of knowing him. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He's given us the gift of love. That's really, really what I want you to take home today. Is that we will live in visible unity and the world will know that Christ has sent us. That Christ has, has been sent by the Father. When we receive and actualize this gift of love He has given us. This isn't any kind of love. This is agape or agape love. It's the love of God. And I want to say sternly, I want to say sternly to those of you who call yourself the progressive church, you have been deceived by our satanic and demonically bound culture. And I want to just say to you, I don't want to warn you today that the progressive Western culture knows almost nothing of love. The best that they have come up with, their punchlines are tautologies. That means when you say the same thing twice. How many of you have seen this sign? It's a black sign. It begins with, love is love. That's what they know of love. They know that love is love. They know that hate is hate. Bad is bad. And truth is truth. 
Dogs are dogs, cats are cats, trees are trees. That's what they know about love. That's what they know about right or wrong. That's what they know about good or evil. Shallow tautologies, they know nothing. People who argue in tautologies know nothing. What do we know? We know the gift of love. John 4, 8, say it with me. God is love. We know what love is because we know God. And we know what right and wrong is. We know what truth is and lies. We know what hate and love is because 1 John 1, 5 says God is light. In him there is not a little smidgen, spot, smear, or speck of darkness. God completely revealed himself in and through Jesus Christ. If you know God, you know love. And not only that, but you're loved by God. And when you know God and you're, you're loved by God, you know right from wrong and you walk in love and righteousness. Visible unity starts with you knowing God and being loved by God. See, when you are loved by God and you know God, then not only do you love God, but you love what God loves. Do you love what God loves? If you don't, you don't know Him. If you do, then you do know Him. God loves righteousness. That's why Jesus is a righteous Father. Righteous Father. Answer this prayer. Because I've made you known to them, righteous Father, that you're a righteous Father. God, the Father, loves righteousness. God loves His children who He's redeemed from the world and brought into the ecclesia, His, his church, and through that, he incarnates the presence of ministry of Christ in the world. He loves the church. Do you love the church? I mean, do you love it? If you love God, you love what he loves and you love the church. And you love being faithful to God and the church. Those who are absent without leave from the church, stop kidding yourself. Stop kidding yourself. You're in rebellion and you are not loving God. Because God loves the church. He loves it. He loves it. If you love what God loves, you also love the lost people of this world. You know, you, you hear this, you hear this, but you never really think it through. People will tell you that, that the lost in the world break God's heart. Have you heard people say that? That God's just broken about the lost. You think, well, well, where does Scripture say that? He, he cares about the lost, that he's broken for the lost, that his heart breaks. Well, it says it on the cross. On the cross, the body and blood of Jesus was broken for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that he became broken for us so that we could become whole. The sacred heart of Jesus was broken on Calvary. 
as the sign of the redeeming love of God that he has for the lost of the world. You love the lost. Your heart breaks with Christ's heart. And you're enthusiastic and you're eager to see the redeeming power of God's love expressed in Christian unity. Does this sound like the church you know? Oh, they all tell you. Folks who know John 17 and are pretty smart about it, they'll tell you. They'll tell you all kinds of things to give excuses of why they're not practicing it. Here's what I'm going to tell you. So I know what some of you are thinking who are listening to me. You think, well, when the theologians of my church tell me it's okay, then I'll, I'll, cross, I'll cross these artificial boundaries. But until then, I'm sticking. I'm sticking to my tribalistic tribe. Not bad to be in a tribe of the church, but a tribalistic tribe is not good because it violates Christian unity. If you wait for the theologians to give us perfect unity, you will be waiting till Jesus comes. Theologians are important, they're good, I'm glad the church has them, but don't wait for them to begin to practice unity with your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Here's another don't. Don't wait for perfect unity to begin working towards perfect unity. It's kind of circular reason. Why can't you work towards unity? Well, because there's not perfect unity. There has to be perfect unity before we... That is never going to happen until Jesus comes. And here's another don't. It's the last don't. I'm going to say it slowly because it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Don't just work for unity for the sake, for the sake of unity. Don't just work for unity to put on a display of unity. The church is really good at doing that. It's that, oh, we're going to get together on, on, uh, on prayer, whatever, National Day of Prayer. And we're going, to have this, we're going to have this display of unity one time a year. And I'm not against it. But don't kid yourself that that's visible unity. That's just putting on a show, folks. Here's where unity that will eventually become perfect unity begins. It begins when you, when you, when you pastor, when you father, when you bishop, when you denominational superintendent, when you begin to work locally with other brothers and sisters in local churches for a common cause for the sake of Christ in the world. What brings you together is not some kind of display of unity to, to artificially show to the world, but, but in your community there are common causes and you come together and you work together to do that, like healing the sick, healing the broken, restoring those who, who have fallen into demonic oppression. And it's too big a job for you or your church to do. And you're saying, I'm going to cross denominational lines and I'm going to do that. Why? For the sake of Christ and the lost. But you won't do it because there's nothing in it for you in the immediate. And that's why we don't have revival. But we could change that. We can be the generation of Christian leaders that change that. 
and we can stop complaining that there's no revival. We can stop hiving in our little beehives like it's the middle of an Arctic winter. And we can join in the prayer of Jesus. John 17, starting in verse 20, our Lord says to us, as he prays to the Father, my prayer is not for them, the apostles alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit help us to do it. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to the Hope on the Way podcast with Father John Ahmed. We invite you to subscribe or follow this podcast on your preferred podcasting platform. To find out more about Hope on the Way Ministries and Father John, check out our website at hopeontheway.info. That's hopeontheway.info. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the companionship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Amen.